Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, May 4th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. May the 4th be with you. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. We're turning to the continent of Africa for today's show. The 54 nations of Africa comprise some 1.4 billion people. The land contains extraordinary natural resources and some of the most iconic species of animals on the planet. Competition for the riches offered by the African continent goes back centuries and some of the worst behavior by the European nations and later our own nation towards African people and the environment are well documented. The post-colonial area in Africa was initially a turbulent time. In the 60s and 70s, armed coup d'etats happened on average every 55 days somewhere in Africa and over 90% of African nations experienced a coup attempt. For a time, it seemed such upheavals in power had come to an end, but lately that trend has changed, perhaps in line with the renewed struggle between democracy and autocracy that has begun to punctuate international affairs. With us today is a guest who has studied history in Africa and who also understands the security challenges inherent in the region and why affairs in Africa matter to the United States. Dr. Mark W. Dietz is Assistant Professor of African and World History at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. His research and teaching focus on 19th and 20th century West African history, especially in the Senegambian region. Dietz moved to Cairo in 2017 after his, obtaining his, his doctorate in African history at Cornell University. Dr. Dietz embarked on his academic career after retiring from the U.S. Marine Corps in 2010. In the Marine Corps, Dietz flew the UH-1N helicopter in Somalia, the Persian Gulf, and Okinawa. He also flew the VH-3D and the VH-60N with Marine One, the Presidential Helicopter Squadron, serving Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush. Dr. Dietz spent much of his second decade of military service in the diplomatic corps, serving as the Marine and Defense Attaché to West African countries such as Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, and Mauritania. In Mark Dietz's final tour in the Marine Corps, he returned to his undergraduate alma mater, the United States Naval Academy, to teach history and to serve as the varsity wrestling officer representative. A native of Beloit, Kansas, Dietz is married to Taryn Redeker Dietz from Kerrville, Texas. They have six children, three of whom he and Taryn adopted from Ethiopia in 2007. Dr. Mark Dietz, welcome to National Security This Week. Hello. Good morning, John. Good to be with you. I know you're back in the States right now for your daughter's graduation, so uh, thank you for taking the time from your vacation uh, to join us on the show. Absolutely. It's my privilege. 
So, Mark, you and I go way back. We were history majors together at Annapolis, uh, and, and we graduated in the same class, the great class of 1990. We also served uh, in diplomatic tours in our respective careers, but you definitely have far more experience in that field than I do. I only did one tour. You did, uh, you did five. Let's talk a little bit about your diplomatic postings to get us started today, a little background on, on, uh, on your knowledge and expertise of the West African region. What did you learn about West Africa serving as Marine and Defense Attaché and Senegal, the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, and Mauritania? That, that's a lot of dip- diplomatic postings all in kind of the same region. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, John, for the opportunity to be with you today. Um, th- those are uh, uh, quite a, uh, a wide um, variation of, uh, of, of postings. Um, for most of that time, however, I was actually uh, posted to the, the U.S. Embassy in Dakar, Senegal, uh, where I was also diplomatically accredited to the Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, and, uh, and Cape Verde. Okay. Um, the, the, the Mauritania uh, posting was actually a separate posting. Um, and, um, you know, for one thing I, I think I uh, came to appreciate was uh, just the, the diversity um, of, of these, you know, the, the five different countries that I was uh, diplomatically accredited to at different times. Um, all of them... Um, well, actually, you know, it was only Senegal and Mauritania um, that was a, a former French colony where I was uh, able to use my my French French language abilities. Of course, the Gambia spoke uh, uh, English, so that wasn't a problem. Guinea-Bissau and, and Cape Verde were former uh, Portuguese colonies, and so uh, the official language there was uh, was Portuguese. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, I always uh, found myself kind of in a in a in a, not only a different language setting, but a, a different culture and um, com- coming to a- appreciate uh, those differences and yet also the connections uh, between those different countries um, in West Africa. Say, say more about that, some of those connections between those, uh, those countries across the region. I, I, obviously, there's some cultural differences uh, that, that date back not just to the tribal time frame, but the, the uh, colonial time frame. But what are those connections today? Yeah, so, th- th- I mean, probably the, the most uh, significant connection that has been there um, over, over uh, centuries has been that of trade. Um, in fact, <clears throat> the Cape Verde Islands were, were actually uninhabited, uh, as far as we know, um, until the start of the Atlantic slave trade um, in uh, the 1500s, right? So um, certainly the, the, the Portuguese had begun to explore along that uh, Senegambian coastline um, in, in the 1400s. But and then there was the development of a of a slave trade uh, along that West African coast, but it didn't actually go across the Atlantic until uh, 1525. And um, if you take a look at the map and look at where the Cape Verde uh, Islands are located, they're 450 kilometers west of the the westernmost tip of Africa, which is um, which is in Dakar, Senegal, or just north of Dakar. And um, so, so this became uh, an important transshipment point, uh, and you have actually the development of an entire nation uh, of people who came mostly from the sexual unions of um, Portuguese and other uh, traders, 
and um, and many enslaved Africans. Mm. Okay, um, and so um, yeah, that's that's just such a a unique uh, and different place, but it's kind of situated like right out there in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, closer to the African coast than perhaps um, the Americas, but still um, very much in kind of the, the midst of uh, what will become the development of that transatlantic trade, uh, where, you know, they're trading in all kinds of things. In addition to enslaved human beings, um, you know, they're, they're trading uh, the, the sort of the, the flora and fauna that becomes known as the, the Colombian Exchange um and and um uh things like uh palm oil eventually are going to be uh traded uh a lot and um you know things like uh, manioc and and uh, tomatoes and all these things that become a, a part of the uh of the 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 colombian exchange yeah um so anyway yeah those trading relationships are are very important and um, those uh, have also resulted in, uh, of course, um, economic relationships that to bring it up to the present are very important. Um, all of these countries that I've mentioned are uh, members of the economic community of West African states, um, which is a very important and, and powerful uh, sub-regional uh, organization in West Africa. And, and that's abbreviated as uh, ECOWAS, right? Right, right. That's right. Yeah. So your research and teaching focus seem to sort of mirror your lifetime experiences as a diplomat. Uh, is that why you focused on this area when you pursued your doctorate in African history at, at Cornell? Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, so I arrived in uh, Dakar in January of 2005 uh, to, to start serving as the, the Marine Attaché and eventually the, the Defense Attaché. Um, and, uh, that was one month after the signing of a peace agreement between the Senegalese government and the movement of democratic forces of the Casamals, which is uh, a separatist movement in the Southern part of the country. And, um, so it became a part of my job to start going to these meetings with, um, senior Senegalese defense officials and, uh, you know, armed forces officers um, to start talking about uh, not only our own um, security assistance, but also how they were going, how they were going about um, trying to realize uh, a real and lasting peace um, in the Casamals, which is that southern part of Senegal. If you look at the geography of Senegal, it kind of makes a backward C um, with uh, the Gambia kind of like a finger uh, sticking in the middle of, of that sea, sort of a lock and key kind of uh, geographic body, if you will. Um, and so that, that southern part, the bottom part of the sea, is the, is, is the region known as the Casamals, which, uh, like I said, has been, um, had been trying to secede from Senegal since 1982. That mm -hmm. was the, the beginning of this uh, armed conflict. And so, yeah, it became a part of my job to go to these meetings um, with other government officials, other members of the international community, um, and um, to meet with some of the, the, the rebels as well, um, you know, from different factions of the MFDC, which is uh, kind of the, the acronym that they go by. It's a French acronym. 
Um, in any case, one of the things that I found was really interesting and kind of strange was that it seemed like nobody ever pulled out a map at these <laughs> meetings. And, you know, for one thing, as a former military officer, and second of all, as a, as a former pilot, you know, I like maps. It, right. Uh, <laughs> um, maps make me comfortable. Um, and um, so, yeah, I just kind of thought it was strange that, you know, in talking about these particular territorial claims of this uh, separatist movement, nobody ever pulled out a map. And there was always just kind of this assumption that uh, we all knew exactly about the claims that, that, that we were talking about. But what I began to hear over time was the development of a discourse um, or kind of, you know, a, a repetition uh, regarding uh, questions of identity in certain spaces and places uh, of the Casamals. And so to make a long story short, um, these spaces and places um, became kind of the, 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 the framework of my PhD dissertation at Cornell. Um, I have one chapter entitled The River, another chapter entitled The Rice Field, um, another chapter entitled The Forest, and then the last uh, two, two chapters are entitled The School and the Stadium. And so I look at each of these social spaces and I look at the histories um, that uh, made each of these social spaces um, uh, a place of um, where there was a certain um, identity claim being made um, in those spaces and places um, in, in ways that were thought to be different from the rest of the Senegalese nation, mm. which was, um, you know, Senegal's 95% Muslim, um, it's, uh, the largest ethnic group is, uh, Wolof. And so, you know, it's kind of the, the Senegalese nation, the Senegalese nationalism, if you will, is kind of founded on this Islamo Wolof, uh, identity. And this part of the, the, the country that I was looking at was, uh, one of the few places where Catholic missionaries, um, uh, had, uh, some impact. Um, and so it's not a Muslim Christian thing solely because actually most of the people in the Casamals are still Muslim. But there was some Christian influence there. And, uh, of course, there's a, a different ethnic group that's kind of um, at the center of, of that rebellion, um, even though it's not solely tied to ethnicity. So anyway, you know, I got to, to Senegal and started uh, studying this conflict uh, to prepare for these meetings and, and, and things. And I, um, you know, I just I just found it fascinating. It was so complex. Every time I thought that I, I had it figured out, I would pull back another layer of the onion and discover something new underneath that I hadn't understood before. And um, so it just became really intriguing, and, uh, and, and I was hooked. It's, it's sort of like uh, the old adage that the more you learn, the, the more you realize how little you actually know. <laughs> that that is so true. That has been so true for me in this in this line of work. Yeah. So, so Mark, you you were a career officer in the United States Marine Corps. <clears throat> how did your time as a Marine inform your desire to earn that doctoral degree? Uh, obviously, education has is has both been important to both of us as uh, as career military professionals. Uh, why was it important to you to, to pursue that doctoral degree? Yeah, um, I mean, I was looking at a number of options when I was looking at retiring from the Corps uh, in 2010. And this is one of the things that I was uh, 
considering. Um, you know, I had uh, done the math and kind of figured out a budget of um, kind of what I would need to live on to make it through graduate school <laughs> with a wife and six kids. Um, and, um, you know, I, I mean, I couldn't have done it without my military pension, right? Yeah. Um, so this is not a career path that, uh, that, that most of us military retirees uh, uh, undertake after um, retiring from the military. But I um, figured out that uh, even though we weren't going to be rich by any means, um, you know, that we could, uh, we, we could make a living that way in, in, in combination with my military pension and the uh, graduate student stipend that I would be receiving from Cornell. Um, I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners know this, but you can actually get paid to go to graduate school and get a PhD, um, depending on the school and where you go and what kinds of, uh, uh, of assistance that, uh, that you qualify for. Um, so uh, the, anyway, this is one of the things that I was looking at. And, uh, you know, I, I applied to a number of different schools and uh, I was a little shocked that they actually let me into Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure they, 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 they didn't take a very close look at my record at Navy. Um, <laughs> at the Naval Academy, <laughs> but uh, no, um, anyway, yeah, uh, that, that was a life-changing opportunity for me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I made the plunge, uh, all the way. Um, I think that, um, I think that my advisors at Cornell, first of all, I was not the first one there. I, I went there and I, I worked, um, especially on, on African history with, uh, Judith Byfield and, and, uh, Sandra Green. Um, and there had been an Air Force officer or veteran who had preceded me at Cornell. Her name is Michelle Moyd. She now teaches African history at the University of Indiana. And, and so anyway, I think that, um, that Sandra and Judy like had an appreciation already for what veterans, kind of the, the dedication, the maturity that uh, veterans would bring to, to a graduate program. Um, and... Um, you know, the, 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 the sort of determination as well, because there are ups and downs. And you, as you can imagine, seven years of graduate school, which is what it took me to get my PhD, <clears throat> um, there are ups and downs. And um, I, cer I certainly had uh, a few colleagues from uh, my graduate cohort um, who threw in the towel, decided they'd had enough for one reason or another. But um, yeah, I... Uh, I saw it as a challenge and, and saw, it, saw it as my job and as my profession and, and kept going even through, through the tough times. Um, but, you know, there's another part. There, we have these uh, 11 Marine Corps leadership principles uh, in the Marine Corps. The very first one is know yourself and seek self-improvement. And, you know, I think that's partly uh the, the reason that uh I, I became interested in an academic career but also because uh i came to realize i think you you mentioned this earlier john i came to realize how much i didn't know uh about the world from from serving overseas and i became interested in becoming a foreign area officer uh in the marine corps um and you know i know you have a, a similar program in the navy uh and, and and serving overseas with my family i saw that as an opportunity um, and so, uh, that, that began an attitude and, and a process of lifelong learning for me, 
Uh, and the more I learned about Africa, the more I realized that I didn't know and that I could never know. Um, and I learned that that history uh, can be very selective and that you, you cannot actually master it all. No, <laughs> but I sure have enjoyed the opportunity uh, to try to master historical knowledge of this one little corner of the world, uh, you know, called the Casamals uh, in southern Senegal. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Dietz, who teaches at the American University in Cairo, Egypt, and we're discussing the spate of coup d'etats that have hit West Africa in the last couple of years. Uh, so, Mark, let's get into our core discussion for today, uh, these, these, the spate of coups in, in, in Africa. According to my information, these are the coups that have happened in the past couple of years. Uh, there was a successful coup in August of 2020 in Mali, uh, a failed coup in March of 2021 in Niger, Another successful coup in Mali in May of 2021, a successful coup in Guinea in September of 2021, uh, a successful coup in uh, Burkina Faso just this year in January of 2022, and a failed coup in Guinea-Bissau on February 1st in 2022. Uh, let, maybe we could start with the with the two coups in Mali. Uh, what was the catalyst for those coups, both of which were supposedly led by, I, I think it's Asimi Goita, is that how you pronounce the coup leader's name? Yeah, that's how I would pronounce it. Okay. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think led to those uh, those coups? Oh my, that is a complex. <laughs> <laughs> that is a complex uh, question, and I guess uh, part of the part of my answer would depend on on how, how far back you know do you want to go. Of course, there are the, the kind of the near term proximate causes. But um, I, I mean, I, we can we can go back uh, millennia uh, to, to some extent uh, with this. But I would probably start for you know kind of a, a, an overview with with all of these West African coups. I would probably start with the Libyan Revolution, mm. um, following the murder of uh, Muammar Gaddafi in uh, 2011. Um, you know, if, if you want to. We could also go back to the post 9-11 uh, jihadist movement um, that uh, the U.S. Uh, military was involved in uh, in fighting or at least trying to counter, especially after 9-11. Yeah. You know, um, the U.S. government became very concerned with uh, counterterrorism um, <clears throat> issues uh, all over the world and um Northwest Africa was um, was no exception, and uh, so there be, became some concern with the the Salafist group for preaching in combat, which or the GSPC, to use the the French abbreviation, um, which was a, a a transnational jihadi movement uh, that came out of uh, Algeria at the time. Um, you know, the thing that kind of got the attention of uh, of people in the defense establishment after. 9-11, I don't know if you remember this, but there was like a group of 34 German hostages who were taken hostage in the Algerian desert. I mean, these were all tourists, right? I do remember um, that, yeah. 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 And so that was one of the things that was in the news for a while. And and a couple of other sort, sorts of kidnappings uh, of Europeans and, and various Westerners um, by these these terrorist groups and, and – um, and, and so the, real, the, the realization that uh, something needed to be done 
about uh, security in these kinds of areas in kind of what becomes known as the like the Trans-Sahara. Um, and, and so the, the U.S. government started this effort that was originally called the, the Pan-Sahel Initiative. Um, eventually, the name was changed to the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership. And um, in this partnership, uh, the U.S. government was working with um, all of those uh, Sahel countries, so Mauritania, Mali, Niger, and Chad, um, and then Algeria and Morocco as well, and Tunisia to the north, um, Senegal in the west, and then uh, Nigeria in the south. And, um, and so, you know, it, it, this, it's, it's partly kind of from this, um, this initiative, and, and I would argue to some extent the, the, the fact that there's such a focus on this area that uh, some of these transnational terrorists um, begin to want to align themselves with Al-Qaeda mm. to kind of like have the prestige of the Al-Qaeda brand uh, in their name. And so what was then uh, the GSPC then changed their name to Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. Um, and then eventually that group is going to splinter into many different groups um, that uh, uh, is going to lead to political instability in Mali, and then this uh, this one of the first coups in Mali in 2012. So um, the French intervened uh, after that coup and uh, sent um, uh, an expeditionary force into northwest Mali to to begin uh, working against um, these these transnational terrorist groups, these jihadist groups, um, and this kind of initiates the beginning of of kind of an antagonistic relationship uh, with Mali. Um, of course, most Mali, most Malian officers uh, as a former French colony have received their military training from France. Um, but uh, this was, you know, kind of the beginning of this, of this uh, relationship that um, was uh, originally, you know, France intervening yet again in one of its uh, former African colonies um, but uh, eventually we're going to see other actors and, and, and more and more uh, local issues become a part of this. Um, so issues such as uh, these uh, antagonistic relationships, for example, between um, herders in the region and farmers. Um, so it wasn't just a question about like Islamic jihadism, right? Um, there, there, there are more of these sort of local factors that become a part of this. Uh, other members of the EU become interested in this. Of course, the United States had been interested in sort of partnering with France um, to, to develop governance in these areas that were considered, quote unquote, undergoverned, mm -hmm. you know, um, to, to kind of help uh, get some sort of governance, some kind of control in, in these areas. Um, especially in the northern part of these countries, which are this, you know, the center of the Sahara Desert. Yeah. Um, and so eventually we're going to see um, the Russians get involved here. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, not, have a, I'll have a detailed question for you on that a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're so anyway, all of that comes together. I mean, um, you know, we could also go back to the colonial conquest and talk about the subsequent failure of these uh, post-colonial states to incorporate those distant northern regions of the Sahel um, yeah. into the colonial state. But um, just suffice it to say for now that, you know, um, 
the Sahara is kind of a classic undergoverned uh, space. And even with all of the technology that we have today, um, that that basic uh, characteristic of, of this space that we're talking about in, in terms of kind of a, a geostrategic um, viewpoint has not changed. Yeah. And, and if you look on a map, uh, the, the Sahara is an absolutely enormous space. Yes. Uh, yes, it is enormous. Um, m most, I mean, I think that most uh, academics and, and government officials and, you know, observers uh, kind of consider it like another ocean, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so North Africa is kind of like this coastline. And, and actually Sahel, that word uh, in Arabic, it literally means coast. Okay. So, so I, I so did a little research for this show, uh, as you can probably yeah. imagine. If I'm going to get on a, on a show with a, somebody who's got a doctorate in in African history, I better know a little bit about the history. <laughs> uh, and I did find that uh, just since 2010, there have been over 40 coup attempts, uh, either successful or, or attempted coups in Africa, and some 20 occurred in West Africa uh, and the Sahel. Uh, and that 44% of those—actually, no, I, let me say— uh, the vast majority of the coups that have happened in Africa have happened in former French colonies. <laughs> so, right. So, and just in the, the just the, the recent ones that I brought up just a few minutes ago, except for Guinea-Bissau, which is a Portuguese colony, as you talked about, the rest were French colonial holdings. Am I reading too much into this commonality, or does history tell us to be mindful of the precedents and conditions left behind by the French government in the post-colonial era? Is that having an impact here, or is it something else? Well, John, you're speaking to a historian. <laughs> you, you, you are my fellow history major at the Naval Academy, so you can imagine what my answer to this question uh, is going to be like. But um, look, you're, you're right to an extent. Um, Francophone Africa has a not-so-impressive reputation um, regarding coups. Um, in fact, between 1958 and 2008, uh, most coups in Africa occurred in, in former French colonies. Um, so, you know, the, and, and I would say that uh, the, the, the history of decolonization uh, in the African continent is not exactly the same in the, the Francophone countries uh, compared to the Anglophone countries. And I think part of that reason, part of the reason for that is because uh, the French uh, kind of tried to hold on a little bit. Um, you know, they had a, they had different ideas about how to decolonize um, in Africa. Originally, there was going to be actually this sort of uh, imperial greater France, uh, somewhat like the, the British Commonwealth, but um, with stronger ties and, and, and more formal structures that would be maintained. Um, so instead of like getting, you know, straight out independence these these african countries um would be a part of this larger french union um and that kind of so so that was something that uh it comes out partly of the the history of uh, the algerian uh revolution and you know the the, the war for uh, algerian independence um but then also through the, the efforts of the French to kind of hold on to the, their empire to an extent, right? And so one of the things that I think was important uh, 
to, to French power in, in, the, in the Cold War period and in the post-colonial period was this, this former uh, empire of theirs. You know, the, the, this, this claim to, to being a, a great power in terms of the, the UN and the international community and the Security Council, um, which is tied to this old empire and most of it's in Africa, right? Yeah. So, so you can see how that's, uh, that's an important issue for the French and why even after independence, they continued to tinker or they continued to kind of, you know, to stay involved, to kind of keep their, their hand in the pot uh, to some extent um, in, in the, uh, the, the post-colonial period. Um, so, so like I said, you know, I, th I think you're right uh, about that point. On the other hand, um, I view the different forms of European colonialism in Africa largely the same. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're basically colonial states that were created for the express purpose of economic exploitation and resource extraction uh, from these from these colonies in Africa, yeah. with the the veneer of uh, quote unquote uh, the civilizing mission, this this idea of uh, la mission civilisatrice, where the uh, you know the French would come in and and teach uh, teach their uh, African colonies, the members of these African colonies, how to speak French, to study French history to take on French ideals, to some extent, um, uh, the Catholic faith. Um, although, you know, France has always had this sort of uh, frenetic relationship between, um, between um, the, the, the Catholic church and, and the, the French state. Right. So, so um, uh, you know, in, in general, um, the, the, there, I kind of view all of these colonialisms as, as sort of uh, the same thing. Um, the other thing is that these are all French colonies because most of West Africa was colonized by the French. Right. So, you know, most of Southern Africa was colonized by the British. Right. Sh should we ascribe all of the racial problems in Southern Africa to some inherent aspect of British colonialism? I, I mean, I, all colonialisms were racist and they were all extractive. Um, so, so to me, you know, I, I think there's very little evidence for some kind of claim to being more responsible or beneficial or effective at colonialism by b between the British or the French or, or the Portuguese uh, or, or any of them. And yet I think that we can, we can also recognize that, you know, French colonialism and especially the process of decolonization had some particular characteristics that affected how we got to where we are now. Yeah, and, and, and to further that, just to briefly, uh, we know that there have been uh, French, mili French military presence uh, in portions of West Africa and areas of the Sahel, even, a, I think, a European uh, task force, both focused on sort of the counterterrorism mission. Uh, and there's been some backlash now amongst uh, the governments in those regions saying, enough is enough, you guys need to go home. Uh, right. Would, would you care to comment on that at all? Um, yeah, I... I, I, I mean, you can kind of see where these uh, West African countries are coming from to an extent, I think, you know. Um, I mean, can, can you imagine having the British continue to intervene and kind of meddle in American affairs? Um, 
I, I think that's kind of unimaginable to us. And and yet, of course, I mean, to some extent, that happened. <laughs> I mean, look at the look at the War of eighteen twelve. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you. So I, I think as Americans, we can also understand why these West Africans are kind of fed up, and and they're saying, okay, enough is enough. Yeah, uh, time for you to go. Um, to, to the French, you know, uh, for, granted, for, uh, granted, they invited the French in initially, but they've been there an awfully long time and they haven't really made a, a huge difference. So time. Right. Ago. Right. Well, I think that's, I think that's key. I think that's key is that, um, yeah, th this, this impression that, uh, the French intervention hasn't really been that effective. It hasn't really stopped, uh, the, the, the spread of this jihadist movement, which, you know, by the way, all these coups that we're talking about, the two coups in Mali, the coup in Niger, um, the coup in Burkina Faso, they're all related to this question of the, the in dealing with these jihadi movements in the northern part of the country. Yeah. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Dietz, who teaches at the American University in Cairo, Egypt. And we're discussing the spate of coup d'etats that have hit West Africa in the last couple of years. Uh, so, Dr. Mark Dietz, let's discuss why these coup d'etats matter to American national security interests in this final segment of our show for today. The U.S. has embassies and nations all around the world. We maintain those embassies to ensure we have a diplomatic presence to foster better relations, both for economic opportunity and for national security interests. West Africa is an important part of the world. In fact, I think we can state without hesitation that this century we will see Africa become vitally important for global economic growth. And that competition for access to the natural resources on the African continent may lead to hostilities, both inside Africa and maybe even among nations jockeying for access to those resources. Why don't you tell us why coup d'etats in West Africa are most concerning to you as a retired Marine Corps officer, career, or a, 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 somebody with a significant military diplomatic experience and, and as a uh, doctorate in African history? Yeah, well... I mean, I think from a U.S. national security standpoint, John, coups, coups create instability, um, you know, that, that often create an outcry for U.S. involvement in the international community from uh, a humanitarian standpoint. But also they perpetuate the weakening of African nation states. Uh, of course, that's, that's never what the coup leaders say is their objective but in reality we know and we know this from history right that that this, these coups lead to this weakening of african nation states um, that was be begun during the colonial era uh, and carried into the post-colonial era as um, gatekeeper states um, as described by uh, Fred Cooper of uh, New York University. Um, and what Cooper means by these gatekeeper states is that uh, the key to power in the colonial state and in the post-colonial state has been who determines what comes in and out of the country, okay? So from an export-import standpoint, um, you know, who, whoever has the say of what's coming into the country and what's going out of the country um, is, 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 are the ones who, who, have, who have the power here. 
Um, and, and the reason be, is because, um, of course, originally that was a colonial relationship. That, that, so again, going back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of uh, economic exploitation and uh, resource extraction. Um, but uh, I, I guess the point that I want to get to vis-a-vis -vis these coups is that the, the, the coup leaders and the, the government officials, state leaders, they're not responsible to the taxpayers of that country. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. They're responsible to the the colonial businesses, or or the the post-colonial sort of these like neo-colonial economic relationships, mm -hmm. um, where the, the the people with the capital, um, the, the, to make decisions about these kinds of things, they're actually, um, you know. It, either outside of the country or this, this um, sort of indigenous elite with um, very important uh, economic and personal relationships outside of the country. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is what uh, I think has led to so much instability. And I concur with a study, by the way, from the uh, Africa Center of, St of Strategic Studies at National Defense University that Part of what is so concerning about these coups is that Western countries have basically come to acquiesce to them. Um, we are, we're much slower to condemn coups recently. And um, if I could, I'll just uh, posit uh, a personal um, anecdote here. Um, yeah, you know, I mentioned one of the places that I was credited to uh, during my, my time as a military diplomat in West Africa was in Mauritania. Um, and that was actually in 2005. Um, I arrived in uh, Nouakchott um, to that. That was kind of a temporary posting for me to to uh, pr provide some coverage uh, as as the military attaché in Mauritania. And I arrived uh, in the country on August 2nd, 2005. The um, I had uh, an army sergeant. Uh, who was going to be uh, working with me there. And he said, um, he'd been in the country a while. And he said, you know what, uh, 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 sir, I'll pick you up uh, tomorrow morning at 7.30. Well, he called me at 7 and said, I'm going to be there a little earlier because there's a coup underway. <laughs> so this, oh, <laughs> this is my first day on the job. <laughs> uh, and like my, my, my official work day hasn't even begun yet, and, and I'm already <laughs> responding to a coup. So this, this was welcome to like political military relations in, in Mauritania. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think what's interesting, though, is to, to kind of look at that coup in 2005. And by the, so, you know, I start um, getting in touch with, with my sources and kind of reporting back to Washington on what's going on with the coup, so on and so forth. Um, but, but I've come to realize that there was a very different reaction to the coup in 2005 than there had been in 2003 um, when, by the way, there was actually a, a firefight that took place outside the walls of the U.S. Embassy in 2003 in Mauritania for that coup. But for this coup in 2005, um, people were driving up and down uh, the, the main street of Mauritania uh, cheering and honking their horns. Um, 
And, and this coup took place um, when the president was out of the country to attend the funeral of King Fahd in Saudi Arabia. Mm. And so basically the military took over and told him not to come back. Um, but there seemed to be, uh, I, I think because the, the embassy in 2003 had kind of uh, condemned, you know, had perhaps condemned the, the, uh, the previous coup leaders uh, too early to, by, by some judgment anyway, um, there was a hesitancy to do that in 2005. And I think you see kind of the continued development of that with um, where uh, a number of American officials have made this calculation, wondering if it's actually in the U.S. best interest to condemn the coup leaders, right? Yeah. So this kind of raises the question, is there such a thing as a good coup? Right. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you do have a, uh, a corrupt, uh, autocratic, uh, violent uh, head of state, um, you know, anti-democratic, uh, uh, who may, perhaps uh, might even be inimical uh, to U.S. interests, um, is, is, that a, is that a coup that we want to go ahead and let that happen and not condemn it right away? Um, these, these are the kinds of questions that I think U.S. officials have begun to answer themselves. And yet, um, I think overall that, you know, in the long term, that's a loss. Um, that's um, counterproductive for uh, U.S. interests. Um, and, and maybe I'm a little old fashioned in believing that uh, uh, the promotion of democracy is something that uh, is, is in the long term interests of, of the United States. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's 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 kind of taken a hit. Yeah, that that's very insightful, Mark. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So as defense attaches, uh, we were often tied to security assistance programs in the countries uh, to which we were assigned. What can you tell us about the security assistance programs you oversaw in your postings in those West African nations? Why is delivering military training maybe even selling weapons to host nation militaries and maintaining regular high-level dialogue between military leaders so important for American security interests in the regions in, say, West Africa? Uh, great question. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that I think one of the most um, important programs that, that we coordinate as military attaches is, that, is the IMET program. You, and you, you remember this, John, from, from your days as the, as the naval attache to Finland, um, that uh, the opportunity to invite these um, foreign you know, international military officers to the United States to come study with us, um, at, whether it's at the Naval War College, whether it's the Army Command and General Staff College, uh, the, the creation of these relationships to what is actually happening uh, on the ground later on, I think is so important. And by the way, it also uh, allows us the opportunity to help these foreign military leaders view, view the world a little more um, from our point of view, from kind of uh, an American approach, um, an American perspective. Um, and I, I think that that is invaluable. That's not to say that we're going to, you know, somehow convert these no, right. uh, yeah. foreign military officers into um, uh, like full-fledged Americans that view the world exactly the way we do. Uh, of, of, in fact, quite often, this question, you, you know this as, uh, as a former diplomat, the struggle is for us to be able to see the world the way that they do. Right. <laughs> um, 
but look, bringing them to our, um, you know, our military educational institutions, I think is, is huge. So that's one of the things, but, um, so, so can I, what... can I, can I just comment on that? So that's probably, I mean, I, I think to take that a step further, it pr helps professionalize their military, uh, and reinforces the idea that, that we hold dear and that's the subordination of the military to civilian political control. And I think that right. that also helps establish sort of the stability that you were just talking about in our previous topic, where coups are probably not the optimal way to change governments, to change political directions in countries around the world. Is that a good way to frame that? that that's right. That's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, we have come in for some criticism on this. Uh, I... Um, I believe that uh, Goita, the, the coup leader in Mali, uh, is, is a graduate of one of our security assistance programs. Um, whenever there's a coup and there's a coup leader who has some kind of uh, ties to you know, education, um, military education um, in, in the United States, that's often brought up. Um, but I mean, he, I think he also had um, uh, military education from France. <laughs> um, a number of the, the, the Muslims have also traveled to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think that we need to start like blaming all of these external actors necessarily. Um, but, but the point is that it's an important program and it really does give us, uh, uh, at least an entrance to having some kind of influence with these very important leaders, uh, in these foreign countries. Yeah. Um, in addition to the, the IMET, the International Military Education and Training, um, I oversaw uh, you know, a few other programs that I thought I could uh, mention. Um, one, which was really important in the post 9-11 world was that Trans-Sahara uh, Trans Counterterrorism Partnership um, that, that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> and um, this was providing uh, education and training for uh, military officers in those nine West African countries that I mentioned. But the other thing that we were working on was uh, also getting them to share intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a tricky, really tricky question, especially when some of these countries have been antagonistic uh, in the past, like, for example, Algeria and Morocco, you know, right. these <laughs> two um Northwest African neighbors with a, a history of, let's just say, an antagonistic relationship. Right. Um, so, so that was, you know, that was kind of uh, a diplomatic challenge. But, um, and, and I don't think that we succeeded necessarily in, in all those things. But, but nevertheless, I, I, I would like to think that um, that uh, you know we, we made a difference uh, to some extent. On the other hand, uh, here's one of the things that I often wonder about, John. You remember that movie, uh, Field of Dreams? Yes. If you build Kevin, it, they will Kevin. come. <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Exactly. Exactly. And so I kind of felt like we took this, what had been really uh, more of an internal Algerian threat, the GSPC, mm -hmm. and made it into this transnational terrorist group that became then Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb. So. Know? By recognizing it and taking it on head on, we gave them prestige that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so like, I, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to like, you know, undermine or, or destroy this, this program, the Trans-Sahara Counterterrorism Partnership, but there's this aspect uh, to which, yeah, I often felt like we kind of helped give these jihadis uh, credibility in a, in a part of the world that they wouldn't have had and, and in ways that they would not have had credibility yeah. before. Um, well, well, Mark, you're tapping into a topic that we've uh, addressed many times on this show. That's sort of the, the, the policy strategy match, uh, having a, a comprehensive understanding of what it is you're actually trying to accomplish with your the strategy you enact uh, to achieve your stated policy objectives over a long period of time. It's sort of that art and science of statecraft, how we use the, the, the tools of national power, diplomacy, uh, knowledge and information, economic power, and military power. Uh, I, I do have one last question that I want to answer, ask of you. We only have about seven minutes left. We know China is pushing hard for access to natural resources across Africa. It's part of their Belt and Road Initiative. And Russia, too, has invested themselves on the African continent, mostly in uh, security assistance by deploying Wagner Group Russian mercenaries uh, in various places in Africa to assist governments potentially friendly to Moscow's positions uh, as they put down internal dissent. Vermeer Vantenspoit is a career officer in the, in the Marine Corps and as a serving military diplomat and a student of African history. Uh, you know, we, we study histories because the you know, old adage, those who don't, under, don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, how do you right. see the next 25 years shaping up for America's national security interests in Africa? I'll give you five minutes. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. I'll see what I can do. All right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, there, there's a lot of people who've uh, referred to what is taking place now in the African continent as kind of the second scramble for Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, because, or, or they're calling it kind of a second Cold War. Um framing it uh, between the United States uh, and our Western allies and uh, China and kind of uh, its, its Eastern uh, allies uh, to, to some extent. Um, and, but, but China is not Russia, um, even though they're, they're often on kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the same side to, to some extent, but um, um, they, they certainly have both been involved in, in Africa in huge ways. I think um, 10 years ago or so, the, and actually they've been doing this, I think, on a biannual basis where the Chinese invite uh, all of the African heads of state uh, to come to Beijing for a meeting. And um, pretty much every single one of them goes, John. I mean, I... I would like to think that if the president of the United States invited all 55 uh, heads of state from Africa to come to a meeting in Washington, D.C., that they would all come. But I'm a little skeptical. Okay, <laughs> But they all go to China. Yeah. OK. Um, and and the, part of what uh, African countries like about uh, Chinese investment in their countries is that uh, the Chinese don't get on them about their human rights record. Um you know, they, they, they come in, they're very kind of matter of fact about what they want to do. Um, a lot of it quite often is bringing Chinese labor to Africa to, to, to realize some of the investments that, they're, that they've been in, uh, making in, in the African continent, whether it's building railroads, infrastructure, port facilities, whatever the case may be. This creates a, a lot of jobs for Chinese. 
Um, and so it doesn't always create a lot of jobs for uh, people in these African countries, though. Um, so, you know, I think that African leaders uh, are, are kind of seeing that for, for, for what it is and realizing that it's a, it, it's a double-edged sword with Chinese investment. Of course, they also consider, you know, Western or American involvement kind of in a similar way because we do have these expectations um, with, that, that we often make very clear about uh, human rights and about good governance and, and so on and so forth. So <clears throat> um, I'm actually, uh, in, in spite of these sort of continuing external pressures, um, I'm uh, kind of an Afro-optimist. Um, re recently, there was a, a, an article published by a scholar at uh, UCLA named Alden Young on this kind of Afro-pessimist versus uh, Afro-optimist um, debate. And uh, I'm an Afro-optimist because I, I, I think that the histories of, um, of colonialism and the Cold War uh, were so destructive to African societies, where again, like the people who are pulling the levers, those gatekeepers that I talked about earlier, um, they're 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 often from either either from this kind of expatriate elite, or actually from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel that um, that now that that's over, that um, um, African countries are having more of an opportunity to kind of make their own decisions and to, you know, to follow their, their own initiative, uh, especially with the younger generation. But, um, you know, this new Cold War uh, between China and the United States uh, does not bode well necessarily for this optimist, optimistic future, but uh, I'm placing my hope in this younger generation of Africans who's um, more educated, um, and, and thanks to uh, technology and social media, they're also uh, more connected and, and uh, more aware of what's going on in, uh, in the rest of the world. So, um, yeah, I'm, sign me up as an Afro-optimist for the next 25 years. All right. Well, Dr. Mark Dietz, unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's edition of uh, National Security this week. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my privilege. Thank you so much for inviting me, John. What do you have uh, on on, uh, on your plans uh, before you head back to Cairo? Well, uh, I have a daughter who's graduating from college in, in Pennsylvania. So, All right. Uh, yeah. So we're going to be uh, celebrating that, uh, uh, that graduation. And, uh, of course, Mother's Day, which is also the same day as my wedding anniversary. So <laughs> lot, lots, lots of things to celebrate uh, this weekend in the Dietz family. Good enough. Good enough. Well, congratulations on all of those things. Thank you. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. The team at Whit Brothers Auto Care would like to thank